Hello and welcome. It's Vicky Midwood here, your host on Raw Chatter. And again, I have a guest with me today. I am not flying solo. I have the wonderful MJ, Mandy Jane Lacey, who is an inclusion specialist. And this is a lady who has got so much to share with you guys. So you might even want to get pen and paper poised to take down some notes or some nuggets of inclusion inspiration amongst other things. So MJ, welcome and thank you so much for jumping onto the podcast with me today. Can you just let our listeners know where you're where you're coming in from? I certainly coming in Cardiff in Wales. That's where I am today. Fabulous. And have you been in Wales for a long time? Is it your hometown? It is my hometown. Uh, I'm not even Wenglish yet. Uh, I come from North Yorkshire. I was born uh, a soft southerner. I was born down south, although nobody knows it. And uh, I've had all my children in Yorkshire, which is, of course, God's own country, according to my eldest. So I've lived in Scarborough since I was tender age of 17 and uh, and I left there 14 months ago uh, to come to Wales to retrain as a social worker. I'm a teacher and a therapist already so this will be a third choice. That's fantastic and why, why particularly Wales? I know it's not a million miles away from Yorkshire in terms of how wonderful the countryside and the people are but what made you pick Wales? You're right, geographically and as far as the population is actually quite a great replication of North Yorkshire and indeed there are pockets of deprivation in Wales that are very similar to North Yorkshire as well as pockets of, uh, of not being deprived, let's say. And so Wales really is about the only part of the United Kingdom that I could see would almost replicate where I'd been for 30 years. Oh, just told you I'm older than 21 don't tell anyone uh, and, and, uh, and so I came to Wales because I felt that my experience in England would be very well served and Wales has something called the um, Social Services and Wellbeing Act of Wales which was passed in 2015 and it's a second to none um, uh, document that provides the uh, well, future pathway for health and social care, which is a very important part of not only my own personal life, but that of uh, the citizens that I work with. So I wanted to be in a part of the world that they say about Wales, that everything they're doing in Wales, they'll be doing in England in 15 years' time. I've always been a future-focused practitioner. So to be Good. somewhere that's already 15 years ahead means that uh, I'm ahead of the game. Fantastic, which can have its plus points and can also have its kind of derogatory points because people are, are a little bit loath to move forward, aren't they, often? So, but let people know because I came across you via somebody else's video. Um, Pete Cohen put a video out and you were the star of, of the show in terms of what how you met up with Pete and what was going on for you. So do you want to explain a little bit about that little video and, and what I kind of perhaps would have seen that made me want to feel as if you were a great guest for the for the podcast. Absolutely. Um, the Pete Cohen is my coach. Uh, he's been coaching me for two years. I met him on a social media app, an audio social media app called Clubhouse. Um, Pete was a, an early adopter of Periscope and was very early on to social media, I understand. But I met him in the last two years 
the uh, the, the audio social media uh, 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 map of, of, of Clubhouse. And uh, I got the app on February the 14th. I think that's quite uh, important um, on that day of love. And yeah. the very next day, I went into a room at 5 a.m. because I'm an early riser. Uh, realized that somebody was on Clubhouse that wasn't American um, and fell into Pete's room and realized that actually energetically I was without doubt, undoubtedly, irrefutably in the right place. And we connected straight away, um, straight away. So Pete was doing morning meetings, meetings, uh, yeah. social rooms at 5 a.m. Uh, during lockdown. Uh, in fact, he just lost a member of his family, his mum, and uh, and he was really work, working through that. Um, and I was in a hospital bed in my lounge, um, really not in a good place, transferring to a commode uh, with, a, uh, with a slide board and having 24-hour care at home. And, uh, and really, that room was uh, a lifeline at that time to not only the outside world but to uh, other energy alchemists who understood that time and space knows no bounds when communicating yeah right and and so this is where kind of the video and the story comes in because you have had all kinds of physical issues and and i hate the term and and you probably hate it too but you are classed as a disabled citizen um and the video was of you with your struggles with parking your car and getting well it wasn't a car actually it was a van wasn't it and and actually getting yourself and your wheelchair to the car park which was a million miles away from where the venue that you were staying in was in the hotel and you actually been able to open the doors and get in and you were going to do it on your own weren't you uh, and this is this is where pete sort of asked would you like a hand um and hence hence the video and i just thought yeah i can see that the energy that was coming from you was very much i am an independent lady but what i loved about the the video more than anything was the conversation that you guys were having on the way to your vehicle um because you were talking about very matter-of-factly the things that are kind of frustrating and that hack you off and, and that you want something done about. And I was like, yeah, I need to speak to this lady because this is the stuff that we can all relate to, to some extent. But you were actually saying, I think, what a lot of people were thinking and what a lot of people want to say. So you were in a wheelchair. And just to let people know, is is that where you spend a lot of your time or are you are you mobile at times? Do you just need a wheelchair when you're out and about? Do you want to let people and do you want to share with what actually you have gone through? Because you've mentioned there that you were in a hospital bed in your own house having to transfer to a commode, which I'm sure is just like I can't even imagine how how challenging that must be, but also needing somebody to be with you all of the time as well and never having space for yourself so share a little bit about what is going on for you at the moment okay so i've been in a wheelchair since and as we know that was a little time away um a couple of decades uh wow. and uh, i went into a wheelchair because of uh, i've got a musculoskeletal uh, condition i've got a chronic um uh condition which is uh, life limiting and it affects all of my joints. I also have osteo and rheumatoid arthritis and osteoporosis. Uh, my joints aren't replaceable, that's the problem. And they're also very, very hyperflexive, so I'm hypermobile. Right. Um, wow. I'm incredibly bendy. Every, 
everything um dislocates super bendy my lady yeah, they come out of you know you can put my hands backwards it's all it's a bit of a trick bit of a party trick so uh so i've been in in the wheelchair for for, for two decades um and uh, coming out of hospital into was a hospital bed because uh, my lift was broken i do have a lift in my in my home in scarborough i've been in there for about 17 years um it needed replacing funnily enough it broke during covid of course difficult for it to be replaced I was intubated for 19 weeks after my heart stopped and my carer resuscitated me on the floor. Oh um, I went into York District from Scarborough. I wasn't aware I was taken into York. Uh, nobody thought I would come out. My uh, The only living member was called. Um, they came to see me through a window. And oh, uh, and I, I carried on breathing. Wow. Uh, wow. Uh, Coming off intubation, they put a DNAR on me, which is do not artificially resuscitate. Yeah. And fortunately, I I came round for a little while, uh, was aware of what was being said. Kind of, I was off, I was out of the uh, ICU then. I was in uh, the next one, which is critical care, I believe, before you go on to the coronary care ward. And I, I asked what was going on. Um, I managed to get some sense. I was told I had a DNAR. DNAR. Um, I I threw the oxygen mask. Asked to call the doctor. Asked for the doctor to come. Uh, I was told it was a group of doctors that had made that decision. So I asked to see the group of doctors. Good for you. They weren't very. They weren't very keen on the idea. And I explained that I would be. I'd be some. And so they came. I asked them to remove it and explained if they didn't. And I would have to get somebody from the legal service to sort that out. Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't sleep until they did. So I literally stayed awake all night until the decision was made to take the DNAR. Once it was, I went to sleep with the oxygen and uh, and, and eventually got home, uh, much to the surprise of the doctors because they didn't actually think I'd get off oxygen. They thought it would be very difficult. And they were very frightened that I would be coming home with oxygen. It's a major thing. Right. Uh, to be able to transfer oxygen everywhere and so it was a real fight um but i did i got off oxygen and uh, got home. and it was in one of pete's rooms actually the third time my heart had stopped and i'd been back in and actually they, they'd already heard me club out I was, I was out of hospital and i was recovering and then back in again and so uh, i went on clubhouse because it was a six o'clock and pete had moved his room to six o'clock and yeah. uh, and I went in, and he said, uh, I went on stage. And he said, "We've been worried about you, okay?" And I just said, "Yeah, you know, I need to get cardiovascular fit." And he said to me then that in his head he was saying, "What do you mean, woman? You need to take a breath. Yeah. You need Breathe. to recover. You don't. What do you mean? You need, you're not going to survive the day, let alone get cardiovascular fit. What What are you saying? This woman's not going to actually." actually survive and he said i didn't like to say anything but like what couldn't have been any yeah. further from where he thought i'd be amazing and so just what do you think um gave you that determination and that strong sense of you guys are gonna listen to me and you're gonna do what i'm telling you to do because if you don't this is this is what's going to happen and you did stay awake until they did it so you did follow through what do you think gave you that determination to to just go no 
this is not happening. Well, apart from the fact that I'm a mum, okay, so I knew I wanted to be a parent at 13. There's not very many teenagers say to their school teachers, yep, when I leave school, I'm going to be a mum, I'm having babies. That's not what they want to hear from a 13-year-old. I already knew at 13 that I was born with a, with a, you know, it, metaphorically a bottle in one hand and a hoover in the other, said my friend Tracy when we went to college. Um, but uh, but I, had all, I had all three of my children. I had my first at 21, and so my eldest is, is 31 this year. There we go, telling age again, considering I'm 21. That's, that's good time travel. I am Doctor Who. Um, and, and it's very important to me that I finish the jobs that I complete, you know, that I, that I start. So complete the jobs I started. And the children were independent. So I called them the children. And of course, they're all over 18 now. They're uh, always and no matter what age, are they? <laughs> always my babies. So yeah. So the, what, what gives me the determination is if I hadn't finished. Not only had I not finished them becoming independent and therefore not my job but i also yeah. have a bigger job to, to to solve and and that i've been moving through the world now for a couple of decades with the dda which is the disability discrimination act in place which was very exciting to know it was there and when i learned about it and the disability equality duty of 2010 you know we're talking about that being 23 years ago right? so, yeah, no sorry 13 years ago lying but 20 yeah over 20 years ago for the dda the original one, so, yeah. yeah, I was I was just very excited to see that the world was going to catch up with the fact that I moved through the world differently. And, you know, I'm not the only person that moves through the world differently. You know, blind people move through the world differently, so do people that are deaf, so that, you know, there, there are a myriad of, of, of differences. So I was just excited to see when I was going to be included and uh, still waiting. But I was going to say, and, and I think you will be waiting for a quite a while when we look at what is going on and the way that people view disability and anything that is not in inverted commas the norm whatever that is and um, but I want to just delve a little bit more into because when you say I've spent 20 years in a wheelchair can I take you back a little bit if it's all right and and just when did you find out that that was going to be kind of your future that you were going to be having to use a wheelchair and how did that affect you emotionally and and did you at any point feel I don't want to do this what's what's the point just tell us a little bit about how it affects when somebody kind of recognizes that that's what's going to happen that's what's going to, your future is going to be yeah so I struggled on two sticks when I shouldn't have for a long long time to the point I'm talking maybe 18 months actually after uh my my I hip I fell in town I dislocated my hip it ended up like somewhere around my head and at that point I had an operation which I have no feeling down the left hand side from the waist down now um right. and and uh I have different theme I think in in the right side it, it's definitely not as sensitive at the bottom as it is at the top right. um uh so I was trying to manage on two sticks against all of the advice and the last time that I walked I say walked in the loosest sense of the word I decided to uh, take my mobility vehicle with my wheelchair in the back uh with my children down to mcdonald's for breakfast 
and at the end of the road we it was on a it was on a, a, a pedestrian area it was only a few shops down uh on uh, on, at the road in Scarborough, and anyone that knows where the McDonald's is, it literally is at the end of the road. It's a few shops away, and we parked at the end. And I decided I was going to use my sticks. I already had calluses on both hands, and and uh, and but I, I I was very arrogant. I was very ashamed. I didn't want to use the wheelchair if I didn't need to, and I felt I had the strength to do it. And I knew we had the time, and they were serving breakfast till ten thirty, and it was only nine o'clock. And uh, I, we all got out of the car and started moving towards McDonald's. And old people, older people, were passing me and going, "You know that you can get a mobility scooter from just there. You, you're aware that you don't have to do this. Do you know, she's got this from the local authority. This wheelchair. Well, the children, of course, knew that my wheelchair was in there, and they were. So by the time we got to McDonald's, it was twenty-five to eleven. No. And at that point, when they flipped the things over to lunch, and the children were like, "Ah, oh, it was a McMuffin breakfast we wanted, not some dinner." I was yeah. like, "That's." I was, I was very upset. I was hot. I was burning. I was sweating. I was very uncomfortable. I felt like a failure. Right. We got sat down eventually, and they had to have whatever it was, fries. Uh, and and I I just knew at that point that I was was being so stubborn that actually the the the, the means did not justify the ends right and so I but so that to... gamut of emotions that went through and the, the physical and this is what I kind of want people to to really take on board because I don't think it's something that that you can experience for sure but I'm sure that descriptively you can help people to understand that you described there the calluses on your hands, how hot you felt, that the effort of trying to move. And when you are, you've got your whole body weight that you are trying to move forward and you can't feel some of it at all. That what when you're doing that, is there anything going through your head or are you just 100 percent focused on getting the next foot in front of the other and keeping on moving i think i think that's of all taking one foot and put it in front of the other whether that's energetically or physically or literally or metaphorically and i don't really have another version of myself i'm not sure where that comes from or why um I think, to be honest, coming from a challenging background means that challenge is something you're friends with or you become friends with because you have to do. Um, and so the feelings are that of shame because not to be the same as other people is not to belong and to not belong against our human nature. We are tribal. And so to not be the same as others is mortifying at cellular level at the very core of me. Uh, to be excluded, to be differently able, to be um, ostracised. And so at that point, when I realised that I was to be differently able and moving through the world had to change, um, I then had to enter a whole new world uh, where I was no longer the, the provider, but the participant. Wow. And that's that's one hell of a shift, isn't it, for you to go through energetically and emotionally. One thing that that's stuck out for me there is just thinking about 
did there ever come a point or has there come a point in in the challenges that you've gone through where you've ever just thought oh, this is just so hard why am i yes. still fighting yeah and has there ever been a time where because obviously my specialism is is looking at addiction and compulsive behaviors and and that sort of stuff and particularly when you're somebody who who has a lot of pain so i you know, i've worked with people with with fibromyalgia and and that pain when it when it hits we don't know how long is it going to last for it could be it could be a couple of hours it could be 20 minutes it could be a few days and, and we don't know and and often turning to food for comfort for familiarity or trying to just numb the pain with alcohol is something that many of them have kind of dabbled into and for some they've been able to recognize actually it's really not helpful and they don't want to do it anymore but for others that in and of itself becomes kind of something that actually they can almost feel like they're controlling even though at times it feels like it's controlling them so do, have you ever kind of struggled with that side of things whether it's smoking weed or or taking painkiller or whatever it happens to be has have you kind of come across that yourself i was born coming across it so i have right. a i have a predisposition to being obsessional and right. the reason i have a predisposition for that is not just because i'm a determined lady but also because uh, i'm neurodivergent I didn't know I was neurodivergent until the three children were diagnosed. I was told when the first one was diagnosed that you only get one in a family, you only get one autistic person in a family. Yeah, okay. And then they worked out, actually, Gilberg worked out in 1986 that actually you could have one up the family tree, one across the family and one down the family tree. And generally you got one at one end, one at the other and one in the middle. And uh, and I have three children. So they looked at me and said, well, you've been married twice to different men, so you must be the missing link. Uh, and therefore they assessed me in my 30s. Beautiful, going into a wheelchair and work out your neurodivergent. And, uh, and so my predisposition to uh, obsessional or compulsive behavior um, or addiction, uh, addictive behavior, was 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 it was in me, uh, yeah. in me, and so the first struggled with was bulimia. So I'm a I'm a recovered bulimic. Um, I used to purge uh, in order to feel in control, and I've been every dress size there is from uh, uh, a dress size four and age fourteen trousers when I was very very ill, um, and the stone to a size twenty eight. And I don't know what weight I was because I didn't get weighed at that point because I didn't want to. Evans, end uh, of Evans, right? So what? we're nearly at the end of Evans. Be careful. They only go up to a 32. Uh, and I remember the Christmas that I was in a size 28. Um, and I was really, really very, very unwell. Uh, I wasn't drinking at that point, but drinking has been a... a, a, a a go-to mechanism when people died or left right. me. Um, Dad went bus when I was 17. Uh, we don't know whether he walked into the face of the bus or whether he walked over halfway and then turned back again. He was alcoholic, and uh, and I believe that he walked back into the face of the bus. The when I turned him off because I had six weeks bed in Middlesbrough General. He was run over by a bus as a road traffic accident. Six weeks on life support, and we were asked—I was asked to turn him off. And um, 
That's and a hell that of a point for you. Were you told to do it or did you have to make the decision? I asked, we, we, we were we were told his brain wasn't responding and that they right. were keeping his body alive. And my, my brother was not really in a position at that point, well, you know, uh, emotionally. Uh, and so it, it was, a, uh, it had been a long six weeks. And, yeah, so uh, and it was time. It was time. I was 17. My mum wasn't able to come. The police had contacted Sheffield Radio, Radio Sheffield, to say that they'd found this man and they were looking for his family. And my mum rang me and said, I'm sorry. Well, she she met, gave a message to my next door neighbour. At that point, we didn't have mobile phones, right? And uh, <laughs> the next door neighbour came and said, you to so I went to a phone box and rang her. And uh, and she said, I can't, I can't come. I can't do it. You, the police are coming to find you. And they knocked at the door. And, you know, they said the police were coming. She didn't actually tell me what was going on. She just said she couldn't do, do anything for me. And the police came wow. and said, you know, Miss Lace, um, are you Miss Lace? Yes, uh, your dad's in Middlesbrough General and he's on life support machines. So it was winter and I drove to, 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 to Middlesbrough actually in a borrowed car, borrowing a fiver to put some petrol in. It had no handbrake and we were in the snow. So yeah, it was a difficult time. And after I turned things off and we, we buried my dad and um, my grandma died, her, his dad, her, his mama died six weeks later of a broken heart and we buried her on top of him. Thankfully, we double dug him. Wow. Um, I ended up in hospital. I ended up in a mental health institution. Uh, and all I can remember is putting my hand out for medication. In fact, when I came out three months later, I told everybody that they didn't have a cafeteria. And they didn't feed me because I couldn't remember having any food. Wow. But of course, they must have. Yeah, but and so is that one of the the catalysts? Because you said a bereavement, that alcohol was a thing. So while that was going on, while I mean, because I'm just envisioning, you know, when my mum was was in hospital and and they kind of brought all of the family into the room and said, kind of prepare yourselves. We think she's, you know, she's not going to pull through. And I mean, I was already in the midst of of my alcohol dependence then, but that was just like another excuse for me to kind of drink even more, um, because obviously the justification to myself well who wouldn't when they've just got the news that their mum's going to die kind of thing so did you find that when that six-week period did you were you turning to alcohol then or was it afterwards no it was afterwards it was afterwards when I returned to Scarborough tried to go back to work at Glazebrook Interior Architects I'm not sure I should say that but there we are I was a I was an I was an admin apprentice and uh, and I went to work the day after the funeral say what and uh and i remember well. just telling them telling them that they could take their job and put it where the sun never shine and that and that, that i was done doing secretarial things for some woman that didn't appreciate me and goodbye and farewell and Drama. you know i was i was very 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 unwell and uh and it was then that i began i went to the doctors i asked for help i got medication uh they gave me that uh, that yuppie drug uh, that they gave to everybody that came from America that was an antidepressant, uh, Prozac, Prozac. There we are. Yeah. And uh, I'd never wanted to cut myself in mouth. It was never something I'd even imagined or, or thought of or or envisaged. And Prozac just made me slash myself to smithereens. Wow. Um, I have I have scars all over my left arm from the many slashes and deep cuts that I made. Uh, 
which added to the idea that they would have sectioned me had I not been a voluntary patient. But when they found me, when they came, when the doctor was called, I was behind the door, behind the door, on the floor, having slashed myself a number of times, um, wow. trying to rid myself of the pain and let out because cutting at that point when I was taking Prozac, and for some people Prozac is fantastic, don't get me wrong, yeah. but for me it certainly wasn't. I had no history of any self-harm whatsoever. It had not been something I'd done physically for self-harm. Obviously, you know, chemically, et cetera, there'd been harm, but, uh, but physically self-harm, never. And uh, and it was a it was a it was an obsession. I couldn't I couldn't help myself. It was just the only way to let the pain out. And so I was found cutting myself. Uh, and and the doctor, Doctor Timperley, an older gentleman who I very much respect, to me that day, you know, it doesn't have to be like this. It will right. it, it will get better. There is, there is something beyond here. Amazing. So I agree. That, that, that guy was was able to to share that with you, and and for you to believe him enough, um, because that's half of the the battle, isn't it? In what is your head telling you? Because if your head's telling you that's a load of rubbish and you don't believe it, it makes it really really difficult. And I think what I'd just like um, our listeners to understand is which you did qualify there is that Prozac can and does help some people, but we've got to remember that just like food or alcohol or any substance that goes inside our body we don't know how it's going to affect us because how our receptors and our hormonal system our neurotransmitters how our kidney breaks stuff down our whole system of assimilation is very individual and so there is no this will help you and you'll feel this this and this or this won't because we just don't know and this is where also helping people to to understand that that self-harm is a way of releasing pain but like bulimia the actual action of doing it becomes very addictive so it's not the stuffing in the food necessarily for bulimics it's the getting rid of it it's the vomiting and the throwing up bit that's the addictive part of it that's why we want to keep on doing it and and it's the same isn't it with self-harm that it gives you what you want and and forget the consequences <laughs> they don't pop into your head when you feel the need to release that pain it's instantaneous and this is where it can be a challenge to get over it so they sectioned you i'm assuming then or not you were voluntary well they were to section me okay and they said that you know there was there was a doctor and there was somebody else there was a psychiatrist and there was my there were my potential because I was actually at my but then I was at my partner's in-law's house because we'd moved in with them right because we right. were not okay on our own um right. and uh and uh and and so it was a group thing <laughs> they were talking about me but not without me and I right. realized that if I did say yes that this policeman was not going to get me basically that's how I felt that if right. I didn't you know if I did as I should then it was going to be less scary and i was quite scared you know i was i was quite scared um and so i i agree and i got to say that the doctor was just very gentle and it was his love really the fact that he was there for a person not for a patient number that made me realize that he he really you know it's a difficult job i now understand um 
approved health practitioner and I understand the, the premise as a trainee social worker of how somebody becomes uh, with their, their liberty reduced uh, and, and into a mental health institution and how serious that is and how many people it takes to sign that off and who needs yeah. to agree. Um, but he did it in such a way that I was a voluntary patient, which meant that once I was in there, negotiation for my uh, for my freedom, as it for me to be safely back out in the community, was much easier. And he must have known that. I knew nothing about the Mental Health Act at that point. Right. I just knew that it couldn't go on. I knew I, I knew I needed something. I didn't know what, but I think it was probably just a rest from the world. I was going to say that 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 sometimes is what we need a complete change of environment and circumstances and just the time and the space to be able to just go oh, for a moment which is what happened to me when I when I was in in rehab and you know people who who have read my story a little bit and, and I've shared this before we know that that was the biggest thing and and I and I share it in the chapter of the book that I'm in and it it, it was just that space to actually find out what am I really feeling? What am I really thinking? How am I? Who am I? <laughs> for, for me was was more the thing. Um, and just jumping back into what, what you were saying, that I can kind of see why you have the determination and the drive that you do. Because from a very young age, you were forced into from what you've said situations like your mum basically saying I'm not coming you deal with it at 17 to to actually have have to get on with it and just deal with it and so this is where when you recognize I think early on that you have got the ability that you are capable of doing this even though there might be a horrific fallout afterwards in and of that moment you did and you could do it and this is part of what kind of you're doing now, isn't it? Because you're helping people to recognize that there is more available to them and they don't have to put up with not being included. And by the way, there is this happening and this happening and let's help you to get a part of it. And so just share with our listeners now some of the amazing stuff that you are helping people to be able to do because of your adverse circumstances and what you've learned. Absolutely. So... I call myself an inclusion specialist because, as I've said earlier, I, I span education, uh, mental well-being and now health and social care. And I believe they are important tenants for a, a human being's life, particularly if they experience intersectionality or difference. So in order for me to lift myself out of what I found, which was the, the poverty of welfare benefits, uh, the poverty of disability benefits, the poverty of um, of having a, a husband then who was rapid cycling bipolar, um, moving on a little to the man that I married. Uh, then after that, he was diagnosed with that condition uh, and my own challenges. And then the children being born, all of whom have some neurodivergence or, uh, or, or systemic condition that comes from genetics. Um, yeah. I then had to move through all of those areas so I went to the Open University and accessed something called Disabled Students Allowance. I then graduated and wanted to work uh, and became a teacher after being a nursery nurse because nursery nurses don't get paid as well as teachers and so I became a teacher. Um, I then went into work and at some point in that journey learned about access to work Access Work is a program to help disabled people move into and remain in workfulness 
but there are challenges with all of these systems. I accessed psychiatry for many, many years through the NHS because I was a person that they recognised really required some some heavy duty uh, therapeutic intervention. Um, and I'm very grateful to my therapist, Robert Tyson, who is a tireless advocate of people being accepted and acceptable. Um, I graduated from him and he actually became my clinical supervisor uh, as I went into psychotherapeutic training uh, with, a, with a gap between being therapist and then supervisee. Uh, and cool. he actually had the psychotherapy counselling service that we developed in Scarborough before COVID. So uh, I've moved through all of these things and through my experience, I realized that actually none of it was connected. Nobody, the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. People didn't know what to put in what order or in what way. Nobody knew what they were entitled to and nobody told them. And so whilst I was in Scarborough for 15 years, I helped people through a charity, um, which I founded to circumnavigate all of these systems and put them all together and create a life that they thought was worth living. Uh, so that down a little and, uh, right. and found focus and workfulness I believe is one of the ways through these challenges um, as is education so uh, I have founded accessibility partners accessibility partners uh, can be found at www.a2w.me that stands for access to work me and the reason that we need access to work people is because um, although it takes 26 weeks currently, nearly 10 months actually when it gets all told to put in place the help that you need. So say I get a job today, mm -hmm. I will have my access to work uh, support. That's the reasonable adjustments needed to help me be within about 10 months. Wow, we so you're not going to be able to work until December? Well, uh, <laughs> We, we help people manage that gap between. So you get the job, you have to start the job, right? You haven't got a choice. And most employers don't know that this is out there. Neither do they know how to get it. No. So I am uh, not only working with individuals at ground level, so at the chalk face or at the, uh, the workless face, to know how to apply and how to manage that gap between. But also we're working with leaders to help them understand what is there in order that they can spread that down to their workforce. Um, so Accessibility Partners provides job coaching and uh, personal assistance uh, for the Access to Work programme and also helps people circumnavigate the plethora of paperwork and protocols and practices that they need to circumnavigate in order to just get to the end of that 10 months, let alone get what they're entitled to. And that is such a worthwhile service because the amount of people I am sure who are just not doing stuff because they don't know how to go about it or are not claiming what they're entitled to because they didn't even know that they were entitled to it. So you are somebody who is filling in that huge gap that is desperately needed. And those links and the, the website information and what have you folks, if you were scribbling down, don't worry, they'll be in the show notes. And if you're watching on YouTube, they'll be in the description. Uh, so you'll be able to click on those links. And on talking of links, because I'm sure that you are wanting people to connect with you and have conversations and you wanna offer their services to leaders who may be able to help get the word out and, and what have you. So can you share with us, what is the best way for people to connect with you absolutely so if they go onto our website and click that contact page or uh, send an email to at 
a number two w.me then they will get a response from my my person one of my personal assistants um and uh, we're going team uh, we are we are literally growing as we speak. I can't really grow fast enough, although we need to do it uh, slowly, slowly catching them carefully yeah. so that what we're providing is of quality. We are person-centred and outcomes-driven. Um, and I like to think that everything we do uh, holds water uh, across, you know, the DWP, uh, health and social care uh, and, and mental health well-being. And so we have a lot of uh, I's to cross and t uh, to dot and T's to cross. Um, so that's the way to get in touch. From that point, there'll be a, a, a meet uh, usually on, on Zoom for 20 minutes where we just gather uh, what somebody's wanting. And there's also some information on the contact page. You can pop in there just to give us an idea. If you don't know what you want, then just ask. You know, if you're sitting and you don't know, you're sitting and you're saying, well, actually, you know, uh, yes, I'm just saying, no, I don't know what I'm entitled to. And actually, I don't know a way forward. I, I want to go to work or I am at work and I'm, and I'm struggling or I'm at work and actually I, think I can cope anymore. And I don't know the way forward. And I certainly don't know how to ask somebody because it's a very difficult question to ask. Many neurodivergence workers just now, uh, right now, if you have a look on LinkedIn, many of them are saying that actually it's very difficult to speak up to managers that don't understand how it can be to have a sensory overload or to feel very uh, emotionally touched by a situation and need a moment or need to step outside or, or need a real adjustment. And actually people feel that they cannot be who they are or express in the way that they are for fear of being seen unprofessional or capable. And indeed, they also feel that if they apply for access to work, that in some way it will see them as not capable uh, for being uh, seen for other jobs or for, uh, you know, uh, for being, for, for moving up in their profession. So we have to move this uh, description, what it is. It's, it's unfortunately, you know, um, when we hold negative assumptions, when we hold that unconscious bias, which we all do, every one yeah, of us, yeah. it's because we look to see ourselves. There's a part of our brain that likes to look for what we are, to look for something that looks safe. And we only yeah. know what's safe by our previous experiences. And when we see something that doesn't look or sound feel like us, there's a part of our brain that shouts help. And it comes right back from you know, ancient times when we were running away from wolves or whatever. And that's not useful right now, but it's how we judge a situation. We think in, in stereo, we think in dual, we're constantly assessing the danger. And as a result, um, it can be very challenging not to uh, misunderstand the uh, And so that we've got to remember that uh, unconscious bias is, is more than a preference. And actually, we have to examine our own unconscious bias in order that we can be providers or, or, or facilitators that know uh, that know that we're doing that in order that we can include people and, and not judge. Um, I'm going to be really, really terrible now. There's somebody just knocked at my door. All right. On that note, I'm going to say thank you so much and I'm going to let you go. We'll put all of um, MJ's details. And if you want to find out more of what she's up to and what she's already done, go check out her LinkedIn profile and have a lovely day. Thank you for your time, my darling. Ciao. Thank you. Bye. Bye.